From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Republican State Representative Ron Hanks has his eye on the U.S. Senate. Now we have an inflation disaster and an energy crisis, a recession on the way. And frankly, I think the voters of Colorado are going to realize that uh, the Democrats aren't doing this right and they aren't doing us any justice. Hanks laments that Colorado is becoming a, quote, destination location for abortion. He'll also share what he considers the biggest threat to national security and his position on new gun control laws. My record at the state house as a defender of the Second Amendment and including a bill this session for constitutional carry ought to weigh heavily on the minds of those that are concerned about their Second Amendment rights. The success of Colorado Public Radio relies on support from active members. Members like you are necessary in order for CPR to be your source for in-depth news and music discovery. Our fiscal year ends June 30th. You can help keep this service strong and help keep funding goals on target with your gift today. Help fuel news and music on Colorado Public Radio now and in the year to come at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Primary voting is well underway. Election Day itself is tomorrow. Today, the last of our candidate interviews before ballots are tallied. Ron Hanks is running for U.S. Senate. But before he can take on incumbent Democrat Michael Bennett, he must beat Joe O'Day in the GOP primary, which is also open to unaffiliated voters. We heard from O'Day last week. Ron Hanks is a state representative from central Colorado. My colleague Chandra Thomas-Whitfield spoke with him earlier this month before the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, but she did ask Hanks about abortion. You have stated that you believe life begins at conception and that you have described abortion as murder. Tell us what is your stance on abortion? I am pro-life, and frankly, that is a major decision point for the Republican Party this year. I'm pro-life. My opponent is not. And that's a full stop. Um, The issue has become a larger issue because of the alleged leak or presumed leak of the uh, Alito draft uh, to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, I don't think it would have been as high of an issue on the on the chart had it not been for that. But, you know, we don't get to pick the issues that we run on. My opponent says he doesn't want to run on social issues. Well, Here's one, and uh, we're going to have to talk about it. I'm pro-life. He's not. Uh, life begins at conception. And, uh, you know, the the world and the science and the medical advancements have um, made young uh, babies viable at a uh, fetuses, if you prefer, uh, viable at an ever younger age. And... Uh, you know, it's it's a horrible form of birth control, wouldn't you say? Uh, we ought to be uh, not using abortion as a method of convenience when there's so many other options. Because once you've got something with a heartbeat, um, 
that's a that's a grim 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 moral moral tragedy that uh, we're imposing on on an innocent being in the last legislative session you were one of the republicans who filibustered into the night against the bill to enshrine abortion rights into law and expressed disappointment at the idea of the state being a so-called safe haven for those seeking abortions how will you convince Colorado voters to change their minds? Well, it's a safe haven is one way of looking at it. I would say it turns Colorado into a destination location. I think people, uh, given the opportunity to discuss this widely in Colorado and across the nation at the state level, uh, will really kind of bring home to bear what we are doing with abortion. And frankly, uh, it's an unnecessary procedure when we could be looking at adoption. There are so many forms of birth control and uh, it, it being a destination location for abortions up to the day of birth is a uh, is really disgraceful to me and actually uh, uh, morally deplorable. Um, you know, as we noted in that House argument, everyone deserves a birthday. And what that was the longest floor battle in Colorado history. And I'm pretty proud of being a soldier in the fight for life because uh, abortion is not the answer we need. Ron Hanks is running in the Republican primary for U.S. Senate. Chandra asked him about a range of other topics. Let's hear more of their conversation. No Colorado Republican has held a statewide office since 2019, with the exception of University of Colorado at large Regent Heidi Ganahl. Democrats hold both U.S. Senate seats and the offices of governor, attorney general, state treasurer, and secretary of state. Why are you the person who will convince Colorado voters to go red? Well, that's an interesting question because I've never really looked at the situation uh, in the way that you framed it. So, um, I think we are in the worst national security crisis that I have seen in my adult lifetime. I, as you may know, Chandra, I started in the Air Force right out of high school, and I put in 32 years as an intel analyst and researcher, and including all of that time as an adult, I've never seen a worse situation in a national security uh, perspective. And now we have an inflation disaster and an energy crisis, a recession on the way. And uh, frankly, I think the voters of Colorado are going to realize that uh, the Democrats aren't doing this right and they aren't doing us any justice. The, uh, the personal income is, uh, is stagnating and frankly, stagflation could very well be on the horizon and the um, pe- people's discretionary income is waning. So, you know, we've put family budgets in a real ditch here with the leadership and the direction we've gone in. And I think people will be ready for a change, certainly by November. What do you mean by a national security crisis? Well, I look at the border as a national security crisis, and it is stressing our social systems and causing inflation and high crime 
to have two and a half million unvetted people coming across our border. We have Chinese fentanyl coming across our southern border that is not being secured. Um, and that fentanyl is killing people in record numbers. And then we have the human trafficking and uh, the sex trade trafficking of perhaps as high as 60,000 people that have been brought across the border for that. So that truly is a moral tragedy of, of our current times, in my view. And so that's just the first of it. And then we have, you know, uh, we had energy independence until Joe Biden showed up. And on the first day, he destroyed that. And as you may know, Chandra, I worked in the oil fields. I fracked in North Dakota while we were building toward energy independence. And what we have now is unsustainable. This, uh, the fuel prices that are running up the inflation on everything that Americans consume uh, is completely unsustainable. Looking at, you know, your run for Senate, what do you intend to do about these issues you described? Well, okay. Um, first off, we restart the wall. We finish building the wall. I went down there in 2018 and again in 2021. I had just retired out from the Air Force felt like we weren't getting the full story of what happened. So in 20, it, what was happening on the border. So I went down there in 2018 and uh, started in El Paso and drove every point of entry road and along the border until I got to Yuma, Arizona, talking with Border Patrol. I went back in 2021 and there was more wall up more of the, it's about 22 feet high of the steel balusters with plate steel at the top, but we weren't building it anymore. There was a lot of wall sections laying on its side and um, we could stand that in a minute and re-empower Border Patrol to arrest, detain, and return. Um, as far as energy independence, that's an easy fix. And that land squarely on the shoulders of blue collar America to fix. And uh, as I mentioned, um, and have mentioned in this campaign, I fracked up in North Dakota, I hammered iron with blue collar America, it's going to be up to them to fix it. And what we need to do is get the federal government out of the way, and um, start signing permits, and, and uh, opening up the oil leases. Once the drilling companies and the fracking companies fully understand that the government's not going to get in the way and shut them down again, the oil production can come back in a matter of months. And that'll drive inflation down almost instantly. And are these things that you would do as senator? These are things I would push forward on, yes. And uh, if we have a conservative victory in November, which uh, given the economic disasters that we currently face, uh, we ought to, uh, we should have um, influence to, enough to bring to bear the opening up of the, um, of the oil fields. And, uh, you know, we're going to need that energy, Chandra, because we ought to be bringing American manufacturing back to the United States. Uh, we've offshored way too much of it. And again, that's a national security risk. We are at the mercy of the foreign producers and countries that might wish to 
uh, impact our supply chain, either through uh, blockades or interdictions. And um, frankly, it would be good for America, good paying blue collar jobs in the United States once again. So the final final pillar of my strategy here is education. Our kids are being indoctrinated, not educated. They are being taught that this is not an exceptional country. And I believe that we need to teach them once again the values of this great country. And to that end, as a U.S. Senator, I would work to eliminate the U.S. Department of Education. How would you go about doing that? Well, the Senate and the House obviously have the power of the purse strings. And um, what we have been doing is completely inappropriate as far as passing omnibus spending bills and continuing resolutions and doing these emergency uh, spending efforts that are questionable and certainly inflationary. And so the House and Senate should work the budget to bring the Department of Education to zero. Okay, let's turn now to the issue of gun control. It's an issue that is proven to be of immense importance to a lot of Colorado voters. You have previously described yourself as a staunch defender of the Second Amendment, who is against any restrictions on gun purchases and possession of firearms. Outline for us, what is your policy on guns? Well, I think you've stated it inaccurately, Chandra, right from the start. Uh, And I think um, my record is clear. Uh, Felons and those judged dangerous by a lawful process should not be allowed to have firearms. However, the average American should have their Second Amendment rights without restriction from the federal government. So uh, one of the worries we have now is with the red flag law um, that the Senate appears to be drafting and somehow they've managed to get 10 or 11 so-called Republicans onto the the, um, bill so far, which I find that remarkable um, that anybody would sign up to be a sponsor on something they haven't seen, but that's what they're doing. Um, Those are problematic. Those are problematic bills and uh, the improper way to be looking at the Second Amendment. It sounds like a dangerous direction to me, and that's why I would encourage Colorado conservatives and defenders of the Second Amendment to look very closely at their uh, Republican options in this primary. And uh, I can tell you that my record at the state house as a defender of the Second Amendment and including a bill this session for constitutional carry um, ought to weigh heavily on the minds of those that are concerned about their Second Amendment rights. Colorado, of course, has not been immune to gun violence. We recently spoke with Sandy Phillips, whose daughter Jessica Gowie was killed in the 2012 Aurora Theater shooting. She expressed disappointment at the lack of progress made regarding gun control in the nearly 10 years since her daughter's death. Here's some of what she had to say on Colorado Matters. You know, it's very frustrating because we know that when we had an assault weapons ban in place, 
we didn't have the same amount of mass shootings that we have now. Uh, we know that this is a country that is far and beyond any other civilized country in the world when it comes to gun deaths overall. So, you know, when people say, oh, we're number one, well, yeah, this we are number one, and that's not a good thing to be number one about. So, um, you know, we just keep going, and, and we keep talking to everyone that we possibly can, no matter what side of the aisle you're on. Uh, we don't care. Well, let's have that conversation. What is your reaction to her comments? I don't think her facts are correct. Her numbers are correct. But, um, you know, she certainly suffered a loss, and I uh, am sorry for that. Um, but I don't think she's uh, got the, the data points correct. Uh, that, that being said, uh, we have a serious crime problem in this country, and it has only gotten worse in the last two years. And uh, frankly, there are many people out there that believe that they should have the right to defend themselves, their families, and their their homes. And so uh, what we ought to be focusing on is reducing the crime and not reducing people's ability to defend themselves from it. Just to be clear, what are your thoughts about an assault weapons ban? Uh, I would oppose an assault weapons ban. And by the way, um, that's a, really a term that has no no definition. It's kind of more of a moniker uh, put on by uh, society and a media that doesn't quite know what it's talking about. Um, you know, semi-automatic rifles are one thing. Uh, you know, a full automatic military weapon can look very much the same but um, they are uh, different pieces of equipment. So when they say assault weapons ban, I mean, it is a, it's a useful marshmallow term for those that um, don't really know what they're talking about. Republican Senate candidate Ron Hanks is our guest. He's in a primary race with Joe O'Day. We heard from O'Day on Thursday. A quick note about the information shared by Sandy Phillips. An analysis published in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery found more shootings since the federal assault weapons ban ended in 2004. But it also cannot definitively say there is a direct correlation to the increase in deadly incidents. My colleague Chandra Thomas-Whitfield is speaking with Republican Senate candidate Ron Hanks. Since they spoke, Congress sent a gun reform bill to the president. When we come back, she asks Hanks about the January 6th insurrection and whether protesters who breached security at the U.S. Capitol should be prosecuted. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. ¿Quién somos nosotras? Who are we? I mean, now I feel like a Mexican-American man versus just feeling like a part-time Mexican and a part-time white wannabe guy. I'm May Ortega, and CPR's new podcast, Quien Are We?, is all about being Latinx, Hispanic, Chicana, and the beautiful things that make us who we are. Look for Quien Are We? everywhere you listen. 
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Ahead of this week's primary, my co-host Chandra Thomas-Whitfield is speaking with Republican U.S. Senate candidate Ron Hanks. The conversation recorded earlier this month. As congressional hearings continue, she asked him about the January 6th insurrection. You were there that day at the protests, which ended in a melee with protesters storming the nation's capital. Since then, more than 800 people have been charged with breaching the Capitol. A number of them, including supporters of former President Donald Trump, have pleaded guilty. You are a very vocal supporter of Trump. How do you view those who overran the police presence and entered the very epicenter of the American government? Should they be prosecuted? Well, once again, you have mischaracterized the entire event. And what I would say in response is there were at least a million concerned patriotic Americans that formed in Washington, D.C. in a peaceful rally to voice concerns and to see what was going to happen next in and with their government. So that's a million people that are being impugned by a very careless um, description of the masses. Uh, We met some remarkable people when we went out there. Uh, And that was an event that occurred between the White House and the Washington Monument. Uh, There was at about 1 p.m. or or thereabouts supposed to be a second event on the east side of the U.S. Capitol and by the Supreme Court building. The um, as people made their way up there and we were among them that walked straight up the grass mall there. um, We noticed by the time we got there and we were reasonably quick about it, even though it was cold and everybody was pretty stiff after standing for seven hours. But a little surprising to see people uh, up on the scaffolding. Um, and so we we went around to the east side where the next event was supposed to be. And uh, at that point, probably within 40 minutes, I would say, uh, there started to be reports of uh, of some events on the inside that were extremely unclear to any of us that were waiting for the next event. But I will also say, Chandra, the the police that were there did perhaps the worst event control I have ever seen for a major event. And I say that as a man with 32 years military service, a lot of it was in physical security, force protection, and threat assessment reporting. Uh, They really did an inadequate effort. And uh, I remember looking at them, trying to make eye contact to see if they were going to do any type of crowd control. And uh, they were standing behind their vehicles with their arms crossed, talking to one another, completely ignoring it. I let, think let, any, let me just interject real quick here. I think anybody that went inside the Capitol was ill-advised to do so because but, 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 let, but, let's, but let's talk about those folks. You talked about there were those who gathered peacefully, but what about those who did not? They breached security, went inside the buildings. What would you call those people, and should they be prosecuted for those actions? 
Well, okay, so that's a kind of a string of questions, sure. Uh, as I started to say, I think anybody who went into the Capitol was ill-advised to do so just on a common-sense approach. By whom? Say that, say who, that again. Who, who were they ill-advised by? They, what I am saying is it was not a good idea for them, and common sense should have prevailed that they should not do something like that. And I'll tell you why. The it's one of the bigger days in events in history, the uh, certification or non-certification of an election that was very contentious. And so, frankly, for the police to have allowed anybody to enter was the first flaw that I could see. Um, but I think anybody that was allowed to enter and did made a fundamental error in judgment because it... Uh, We've all been to public events, I presume, and even at a concert, you don't get to go inside doors and back doors. And, uh, you know, if you do, you would have to expect that ultimately you're you're going to be in the wrong place, at least as far as the perception of of mm -hmm. securities. In your view, were those who you're referring to who were not gathered peacefully, who entered the building, were they, in your view, driven by statements from President Trump that the election had been stolen? Well, I can't speak to the motives of anybody other than myself. Uh, what I can say about those people that were um, climbing the scaffolding and some people that we saw that seemed much uh, more spry is that uh, they hadn't been standing there among us with their skateboards and backpacks and elbow pads and knee pads and that sort of thing. So, uh, and we did have reports of, uh, of people coming in on the Metro from, uh, Virginia. Um, so it looked to us, uh, that there were people coming in that were not part of the first event that became part of the, the capital effort. But, uh, just, just to, to be clear, um, I just want to make sure that this, this is clear. Um, should those who breached security and went inside the nation's capital be prosecuted? Well, that's where I was headed uh, before, I guess, the, the couple of interjected questions is uh, that you put a number of 800 people uh, that have been prosecuted. Um, I don't know if your numbers are accurate or not, but fundamentally, uh, I think anybody that went inside was ill-advised. If they did any damage, and we ought to be able to capture that off of the video from all the different angles, then they ought to be prosecuted. But that is a public building that we hold in high regard, and I have no respect for anybody that's taken a bat or a, a stick to, to paintings or statues or whatever damage might have uh, occurred. So um, I do think that anybody that there's evidence that they have done something wrong ought to be prosecuted. You sponsored a bill in the state legislature this past session that, with limited exceptions, would have eliminated mail-in balloting, which is now underway in our state. The measure you backed also would have required voting to take place only on Election Day and would require that ballots be counted by hand. 
Some would argue that those changes limit access to Colorado voters. Why do you believe those measures would benefit Colorado voters? Well, I think voters have very little confidence in their voting systems. And based on what we've seen and the evidence provided by multiple sources, they ought to have very little confidence. Our voter rolls are a mess. And uh, that was part of one of the comprehensive bills. I actually did two bills this legislative session on election integrity and um, cleaning the voter rolls certainly ought to be part of our overall process. The mail out balloting may be acceptable provided that there are anti-counterfeit measures on the ballot. So that's one thing. Uh, You could mail those out, but it is appropriate for people to bring them back in person and provide an ID. Uh, These drop boxes, I think, are fundamentally insecure. And um, I also think that the the multiple day um, uh, balloting allows for intrusion and uh, and the potential for vote uh, counting to see what the deficits required are. You know, and these systems that we're using are not secure in any national security sense of the word. I've mentioned this about the Dominion, the laptops used with the Dominion systems are made by Dell, but they're made in China with foreign workers using some off-the-shelf parts that are not secured like we secure our equipment and supplies to build a communication satellite or a navigation satellite, and they ought to be because voting is the most sacred uh, uh, right of any American citizen. Any any false ballot, any uh, unlawful vote disenfranchises all of us. This ought to be the most bipartisan issue in the, uh, in the legislature. And of course, it is the state legislature's job to, to be proactive uh, when there are, uh, because it's, it's their responsibility to handle elections, not the federal government. And the bills that I put forth were uh, put forth in several states. And uh, I think they work as a benchmark for future general assemblies and legislatures to, to look at them. Let's pause a moment for some context. Regarding the idea that drop boxes are fundamentally insecure, there is no evidence that the state's drop boxes have been breached or that there is any widespread fraud in the election system in Colorado. That's based on hand counts, audits, and machine tallies that match the paper ballot trails. We should also note Dominion Voting Systems, which is headquartered in Denver, has filed a number of defamation lawsuits against pro-Trump media outlets and allies. Now back to the interview. Colorado, as you know, has long been considered a purple state, and you are known as a very vocal Trump supporter. But there are those nationally and locally who say it's time to move on from him. That seems to encapsulate what some call a battle for control of the GOP. On your website, you say the conflict is part of the, quote, long-running rift between the Colorado Republican grassroots conservatives and the small but influential Republican Party leadership in Colorado, end quote. Should the party move on from Trump? You know, I don't think anybody should be uh, an iconic cult figure that um, 
you know, like a Lenin or a Stalin or uh, uh, Hugo Chavez or Castro. I mean, Donald Trump uh, did some remarkable things under some very, very difficult circumstances. But I don't think anybody should um, hero worship, and I don't think anybody should uh, uh, hang all their hopes on one man. The man is 74 years old. He has the right to do whatever he wants to do in the future. If he were to run in 2024, um, that's his prerogative. If he chooses not to, I think uh, he has earned that right. So, you know, the idea of moving on from Trump uh, in the sense that um, he doesn't have to do anymore. He's done plenty in the effort here. Uh, I would I would salute him and uh, and congratulate him in his retirement. Uh, now, let me ask you this, uh, since we're talking about him. Have you or any member of your campaign ever asked former President Trump for an endorsement in your race? No, but if we were offered one, I would accept it gratefully. I mean, um, right now, I don't know if um, that's even viable or if, you know, the who's handling his his endorsements. I think uh, at this point, with the previous question was on the establishment, uh, I think there is a big rift in this Republican Party about who ought be in control of it. The establishment has held it for a very long time, the grassroots. And I got to tell you, Chandra, my campaign is built off of uh, concerned patriotic Americans that are um, worried about the direction of their country. I think um, the establishment is concerned that their positions are in jeopardy. And uh, Frankly, you know, I think a lot of these people that are in the establishment appreciate being the loyal opposition and the uh, the paid old guard punditry, but they really haven't produced or provided anything. And frankly, that's part of the reason there's so many unaffiliated in Colorado is uh, the Republican Party has offered them nothing except emails asking for money. Uh, so that they can uh, be a member of an organization that doesn't do anything for them. I mean, uh, it doesn't take a lot to figure out why somebody wouldn't want to be a member of that organization. I would like to ask you something on the lighter side as we close. One of the questions we're asking candidates is to share the name of a book that they're currently reading or one they previously read that has had a great impact on their life. What would that be for you? Well, I guess the one that's nearby is Tools for Titans, I think, was kind of an interesting story about people, uh, multiple stories about, you know, how people's uh, work through their life with different efficiencies and a little different processes. Representative Hanks, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you, Chandra, and have a good day. You too. State Representative Ron Hanks, who's running in the Republican primary for U.S. Senate. He spoke with my colleague Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Hear her conversation with Hanks' opponent in the GOP primary, businessman Joe O'Day, at CPR.org, and in the Colorado Matters podcast. This is CPR News. In Colorado, 6,000 miles of streams, the rainbow trout gets the glory, but the cutthroat trout is the true local. 
Rainbows were introduced to the Gunnison River in the late 19th century, but the cutthroats, marked with a crimson slash under their jaws, were already here, descendants of Pacific salmon that ventured further and further inland more than three million years ago. The ones that got the furthest evolved into the greenback cutthroat trout. Believed extinct by 1937, small populations were later discovered, and the greenback cutthroat trout officially became the state fish in 1994. But in a case of mistaken identity, genetic testing found those fish were not true greenback cutthroats. A small number of the real thing, however, were found in a stream on the southern slope of Pikes Peak, stocked by an innkeeper more than a century earlier. Anglers will find them there today, and in hatcheries around the state, making a comeback. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with the support of Sheets and Giggles, a Colorado company. Cheers morphed into chants last night as the Colorado Avalanche won the Stanley Cup. This is at the tight end bar on Colfax in Denver. The victory was a dethroning of the two-time defending champion, Tampa Bay Lightning. This is the Avs' first Stanley Cup since 2001. Tomorrow we'll have the story of the Cup's custodian. Thursday is Denver's victory parade. Speaking of a parade, there was one just this weekend in Denver, the culmination of LGBTQ Pride Month in the city. Once again, let's join my colleague, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. We went to see one of the floats as it was under construction. It has a surprising theme, which we'll explain more in a bit. All we saw when we walked in was a sea of flowers. Oh my God, there's just so many flowers with beautiful, beautiful colors. Roberto Esquivel is our guide. There are probably 200 flowers in here. They're not real. They're all made of paper in so many bright colors. Lilac, fuchsia, yellow, orange, blue. It's just a wonderful artwork here. It's amazing. They're laid out on a table waiting to be added to the pride float. The artist behind this eclectic garden is Reina Rodriguez, who lives in Brighton. She primarily speaks Spanish, so we spoke with her through an interpreter. Yo toda esta arte, pues la hago prácticamente de memoria. Yo a veces no necesito molde, no necesito nada. Yo compro las tijeras, me agarro y para mí esto, esto es un arte. Basically, all this art comes from just my mind, from memory. I think the more practice I have, the more creativity is born. But I just grab scissors and I start cutting away. The sun will catch the glitter. That's going to be beautiful. Have you always been interested in art? Always. I think that I have always liked to be working in something similar, even if it's making my own frames in my house. If I don't like a color uh, scheme in my house, I will change everything and change. Uh, I even make like uh, flowers for a vase, things like that. How did you get started with this? Un día me, me puse a ayudar a una sobrina que quería quinceañera y dijo que pues era mucho dinero, entonces yo le dije, yo puedo, mija. The way it started is uh, my niece was having a quinceañera. She told me that she didn't have a lot of money. So I told her, I, we could do this, mija. It all started from that. Pero hacer... Uh, 
tengo como 30 años que yo ya... But I think that it's been over 30 years that I've been doing um, anything that's art-related, like even grass. I would grab grass and just stick it on a frame and it just uh, nature, nature itself. I tried to place it somewhere where it looks beautiful, like on a frame. Don't let the bright colors fool you. These flowers will actually help convey a somber message during Pride. This is the unusual theme I mentioned. This float in the Denver Pride Parade will have a Day of the Dead theme, Dia de los Muertos. It is meant to honor those in the community lost to HIV and AIDS. Roberta Esquivel, who brought us here, works for a human services organization called Servicios de la Raza. Esquivel and his colleagues will festoon their float with flowers alongside skulls in keeping with the theme. So this float is going to pay homage to those in the Latino and Chicano communities who've been affected by HIV AIDS. Why was that so important to highlight? When we were thinking about what theme we were going to use, um, it just resonated with me uh, being at Dia de los Muertos. I had just started with Servicios last October and went to Dia de los Muertos. And it, it just inspired me how our cultures pay so much tribute and so much um, dedication to the people who have parted. And the colors and the traditions and the dances and the, the singing and the celebration of life and also the celebration of those who are not, no longer with us, it was just very moving. And so when we started thinking about the theme of the float, I wanted to do something that would not only represent our cultures, but also pay tribute for those who are no longer with us. And so um, this is how the vision of El Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead, came to be the theme of the flood for this year. What do you want people to know about how HIV AIDS has impacted your community? I would say that we're not out of the woods. I would say strongly um, suggest that people get tested. There's no risk. It's free. It's, un- it's confidential. It's available. Um, and you should know your status. You should know what's going on with your body. This is a great um, job that we have to do, to prevent, to motivate people to get off on their feet and get tested and, and talk about sex and talk about sexual orientation. And so we need to definitely put the word out there and, and stop being scared and stop st- stigmatizing HIV or AIDS. It's not contagious with casual contact. And so let's wake up about this. This is, this is tremendous and we need to do something about it. Do you think this is an issue primarily with the LGBTQ community or is it a bigger issue? I think there are bigger issues. I think that the GLBT is a fundamental part in um, trying to do prevention work uh, within our GLBT community, but we need to do more than that. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about our youth, we're talking about our men having sex with men, we talk about men having sex with men, but our 
heterosexual. And so there are different classifications. The idea here is to promote prevention and information as well as education. Another person here helping with the float is a health enrollment specialist at Servicios de la Raza named Ever Hernandez. He is closely connected to the floral artist. Reina Rodriguez is his mother. You know, even from this experience of watching her do these flowers and me coming home from work and just helping her out with what we can with me and my sister doing that, um, one thing that she's always told me my whole life was patience is an important thing to have. And, and, you know, being the age I am now, a couple of 20 years later on, um, I do not have that patience, but she still gives me that lesson to this day, especially in circumstances like this, where uh, I see her continuously do flowers and I tell her, I'm like, I, I give up after a couple rounds and I go back at it compared to what she's doing. Tell us about the materials you like to use. Yo uso toda clase de papel, hasta el del baño. I use all kinds of paper, including toilet paper. I'm sure during the uh, pandemic toilet paper shortage, maybe some flowers mysteriously disappeared. En ese tiempo no usé el papel de baño porque sabía que era necesario. Yeah, during that time, I did not use that paper because I knew it was necessary. Esquivel is learning how to make one of these flowers. Rodriguez pulls out the paper flower petals she pre-cut at home, a big jar of glittery accents, and her hot glue gun. She uses a little metal tool to curl the petals, like you would curl a ribbon on a present. Then she layers the petals on a circular base. I made my first flower. (laughs) It's like a lotus, yeah. They're the ones that kind of float on the water. And this one particularly has yellow, like a pastel pale yellow. What is your vision for this float? My vision to the, for this float, I just, I create a big smile just because I envision the float just full of these beautiful flowers, right? A uh, representation of our colors, our culture, and just, uh, you know, calaveras, which are the skulls that are representative of uh, Dia de los Muertos, and the other little Mexican flags that we will have been putting on the, on the ceiling, and other little decorations that, that are also going to uh, be a fundamental part of the float. Can you tell me more about the significance of color in the Day of the Dead? Pues para el Día de los Muertos, para mí ya ve que usualmente se usan también todos los colores, pero para mí el Día de los Muertos son colores apagados. So the colors that are normally used in Día de los Muertos are, they tend to be sad and not as vivid, like kind of darker. And so I wanted to incorporate more color and make it more like alive. And so there are colors though that are, that I respect but they're also very sad, so I wanted to do more with it. Mission accomplished. <laughs> Misión cumplida. Muchas gracias. Muchas gracias. Thank you very much. Uh, on a more serious note, I understand you recently lost your father due to COVID, and uh, we're sorry to hear that. Has this been helpful in your grieving process to work on the flowers, especially with the theme that you've chosen? 
definitivamente me he clavado mucho en tener mi mente ocupada porque él era mucho para mí, muchísimo. Y lo extraño demasiado, pero tengo otro motivo de que es mi madre, que es la que ahorita me saca de pensar en ella. Uh, yes, it was really, really difficult. Uh, my dad was everything to me, and losing him was really, really hard, but I think that this has helped me. And I just, I've been like super focused on working on this. I know that keeping my mind busy um, helps. If it's not doing this, it's cooking. I cook a lot. And I think I have a purpose to also. My mom is still with us. So I try to keep busy. And she's a reminder that I should keep going. And um, whether it's the flowers or panecillos, which is what I make for, it's a centerpiece that um, is utilized in baptisms and special events. I do that as well. What reaction do you hope others will have when they see this sea of flowers on the float? Me quedaría satisfecha porque digo, pues el el esfuerzo que uno hace bonito porque es uno. I think that just I would be satisfied. I would feel satisfied. I think because just the effort, the amount of effort that it, I put in. It's beautiful, the effort that I put in. And, and so I think that I would feel just complete and full. Artist Reina Rodriguez speaking about her work on the Servicios de la Raza float for this year's Pride Festival, which took place Sunday. See the float under construction at CPR.org. We also asked Roberto Esquivel what makes it special. When we look at a flower, we see the beauty of it. And some like roses, some like carnations, some like daisies. But more than that, I think it's just a a reunification of different classes of people, different cultures. Um, And certainly, that's what pride is all about, is accepting each other for what we are and loving each other. And beyond that, nothing else matters. Roberto Esquivel of Servicios de la Raza, which translates to Services for the People. He says DoorDash helped them pay for the float materials. Artist Reina Rodriguez donated her time. She says she always makes her flowers for free, although the organization thanked her with a small monetary gift. Our thanks to producer Rachel Estabrook and audio engineer Michael Hughes for that story. Thanks as well today to Anthony Cotton and Benta Berkland. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.